0: environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This this is is ECOCAST. Hello and welcome to ECOCAST, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer.
1: And I am Brandon Golm.
0: So today's guest is Craig Santos-Perez. Craig is an indigenous Chamaru from the Pacific Island of Guam. He is the author of five books of poetry and the co-editor of five anthologies. He holds a master's in creative writing from the University of San Francisco and a PhD in ethnic studies from UC Berkeley. He is a professor of English at the University of Hawaii Manawa where he teaches creative writing, Pacific literature and environmental poetry. Welcome Craig and thanks so much for coming on to the show.
2: Half a day, Aloha. Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Looking forward to talking about some of your poems.
0: So today we are going to be focusing on Craig's new book of poetry, Habitat Threshold, published by Omnidorn in March 2020. And the opening poem of this collection is called Age of Plastic. And so today's root word is plastic. So in common usage, the word plastic primarily denotes the synthetic material that is so ubiquitous and inescapable today. Our lives are full of it and so are the oceans. An estimated 8 million tonnes winds up in the ocean every year and consequently in the bodies of sea life. When we think about plastic, we usually think of it as the epitome of what is unnatural, synthetic or artificial. And so It always surprises me to remember that plastic, just like everything else on the planet, is in fact made from natural materials, because there are, of course, no materials that are not natural, that do not come from the planet or the universe that we inhabit. Plastic is usually made from crude oil, which is, as you know, the fossilized remains of ancient creatures. What's special about plastic is the series of transformations that it undergoes, from ancient sea creature to oil to plastic, transformations which also change it from a biodegradable material to something that will endure for a very long time. What was once a living thing is turned into something that will outlive us all. And this is the big irony of plastic. It is fantastically and dangerously durable, and yet we often use it to create items intended to be used just once. The word comes from the Greek plastikos meaning molded, which comes from plasine meaning to mold. The English noun plastic originally referred to the art of modeling or sculpting figures, especially in clay or wax, and then went on to refer to anything that is easily molded or shaped, as plastic polymers were found to be when the first plastic bakelite was invented in 1907. And as Roland Barthes wrote in his book Mythologies in 1957, more than a substance, plastic is the very idea of its infinite transformation. Craig's opening poem is called Age of Plastic, no doubt because of the ubiquity of the material today. We are indeed living in an age of plastic, but we can also read it in the etymological sense, We are also living in a plastic age, a time that is malleable and in transformation, being moulded and shaped by the actions of some human beings. Like plastic, once set, many of the changes that we are bringing about will be far more long-lasting than anything we've made before. Like plastic items that are quick to produce but that will endure for centuries, the planetary transformations of the Anthropocene will be brought about in a matter of decades or centuries, and yet they will endure for many millennia. And so with all of that in mind, perhaps we can begin, Craig, by asking you to read that opening poem, Age of Plastic.
2: Well, thank you, Gemma, for that profound and poetic segment on The Root of Plastic. My poem, Age of Plastic. The doctor presses the plastic probe against my pregnant wife's belly. Plastic leaches estrogenic and toxic chemicals. Ultrasound waves pulse between plastic tissue, fluid and bone until the embryo echoes. Plastic makes this possible. My wife labors at home in an inflatable plastic tub. Plastic disrupts hormonal and endocrine systems. After delivery, she stores her placenta in a plastic freezer bag. Plastic is the perfect creation because it never dies. Our daughter sucks on a plastic pacifier. Whales, plankton, shrimp, and birds confuse plastic for food. The plastic pump whirls. Breast milk drips into a plastic bottle. Plastic keeps food, water, and medicine fresh, yet, How empty plastic must feel to be birthed, used, then disposed by us, degrading creators. In the oceans, one ton of plastic exists for every three tons of fish. How free plastic must feel when it finally arrives to the paradise of the Pacific gyre. Will plastic make life impossible? Our daughter falls asleep in a plastic crib, and I dream that she's composed of plastic so that she, too, will survive our wasteful hands.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah, so I want to talk... this one uh, one of the things I, I really enjoy and this I, I'm gonna have to kind of explain it for the listeners because obviously there's a visual uh, component to this poem that is certainly lost um, perhaps in the reading. Um, but I love that that you're kind of bolding uh, so every time the word plastic appears in this poem, um, you have it bold in bold face, right? So it's it's as soon as you kind of turn and flip to that page, it's it's just there, it's staring at you. And I love that that kind of of kind of um, relationship between right. I mean, it's in thinking about stuff like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and all this kind of stuff that's just there for us to see. Um, and and so I think one of the things that kind of struck me about this um, is you know in thinking like if. Um, right. We, we try and tell our students, um, Not to be repetitive, not you know to to use a variety of word choice and stuff like that, but I think there's something powerful in not only being repetitive in this term, um, but also in in highlighting that repetition through that bold face. So, can you tell me a little bit about um, you know kind of of your your thought in 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 formulating this poem and framing this poem, um, the ways that you're connecting it to stuff like uh, you know the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and and you know just the the, the garbage in our waterways and things like that
2: yes thanks for noticing that um you know as gemma pointed out plastic is so ubiquitous that i wanted to capture um, its everywhereness through uh, repetition so you know using plastic in every sentence of this poem was was really important and thinking about it in different contexts as well and then i wanted to also highlight um its presence through type, you know, typography. And so you know, the, the word plastic is bolded, as you mentioned, all the other words are kind of at a, a lighter grayscale color. And so visually it looks like the plastic is, is being foregrounded while everything else is moving to the background. And so you know, in poetry, so much of the time, like form itself has a embodied meaning and so by doing that, I wanted to show, you know, how plastic is kind of rising to the surface, just as it, it remains on the surface of of the ocean.
0: Mm, I think as well, what you, what you kind of capture really well in this poem is the kind of um, this ambivalent or double feeling that so characterizes just our age in general, the way that we are all kind of, implicated within the same forces that we know are destructive so you know we know how kind of toxic and poisonous plastic is but actually to get away from it is nearly impossible you have to live a very very different kind of life if you're going to avoid it altogether um I mean I can see Craig that both you and I have got plastic glasses on our on our faces for (laughs) a start um but yeah, and then I was very I,
1: conscious about not bringing up like I had I had a plastic thing of Sprite zero. I was like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to drink that on this episode. <laughs> um,
0: but yeah, and and that kind of, you know, that mimes a, a a broader situation where um, you know, we kind of we're all involved in carbon producing activities um so it's 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 you know it's this kind of thing of of seeing what is um what is the problem, but also this kind of painful recognition recognition that that we are very much embroiled in it and and um and can't really avoid it. So I wonder whether you can kind of um build on that and, and maybe zoom out a little bit and, and talk more about the book in general, about kind of the ideas that, um, that inspired it and what kind of themes and ideas go through it. Um, and if you can reflect a little bit on, on the title of the of the actual book Habitat Threshold, I'd really be interested to hear, um, what's behind that as well.
2: Yeah. So I started writing this book about, um, five years ago when, when my first uh, child was born and, you know, it was around the same time of, you know, these larger uh, global climate justice movement. And so I was thinking a lot about uh, these issues, both on a local scale here in Hawaii and the Pacific, but also globally. And then as a new parent, I was of course, you know, thinking about my daughter, And the world that she is going to grow up in, and feeling a lot of uh, anxiety and and worry. And so, you know, a lot of those feelings uh, came out in these poems. Um, You know, in the first one, you know, as we discussed, you know, talked about our entanglements with plastic, you know, from, you know, just getting an ultrasound to, you know, my daughter's pacifier and her bottles. And then the other poems explore, different aspects of the climate crisis, as well as other environmental justice issues um, related to food, water rights, um, and uh, coral reef bleaching, ocean, you know, sea level rise, and all these uh, issues that we're facing here in the Pacific and around the world. And, you know, but, but kind of seen through the lens of, of you know, a new parent, as well as, of course, a, a Pacific Islander. Uh, The title itself, Habitat Threshold, was just a phrase I had come upon in my research, and it really struck me, uh, you know, both its sound, you know, in the sense it sounds poetic to me, but also, you know, both the words habitat, thinking about what that means in terms of of home and habitation, and then threshold as well, thinking about limits and tipping points. Um, And so... Those are kind of some of the main themes and a little bit of the, you know, the personal context of, of why I started writing this
1: book. Uh, so can you speak, before we kind of get into uh, looking at or having you read out some of your other, your poetry, can you talk a little bit more again, kind of building out, like, how does this um, collection fit within, your know, your work? Are these kind of uh, new ideas for you? Are these things that you often grapple with in your, in your poetry? Um
2: yeah, so this is my, my fifth book of poetry. Uh, my previous four books actually all focus on uh, my homeland of Guam, which is a, a U.S. territory and has been a, a colony for uh, over 100 years. And so, you know, my previous work focuses a lot on the, the politics and history of Guam, and then, of course, uh, my indigenous Chamorro culture. And so this was a little bit of departure in the sense where I write more about Hawaii, where I've been living for for mm-hmm. ten years, and um, writing more about global issues as opposed to really local issues specific to to where I come from.
1: So, uh, so I just wanted to throw in a quick uh, another quick plug for you because I was just talking with my wife last night about you know today's podcast and stuff, and uh, she she did a quick search and we read through your. Um, the one on spam which we thought was <laughs> really, really fascinating and, and kind of a, a, you know, just just interesting. Like you know how how deeply you know, like a lot of people would not think that that much about spam, but clearly it's such so, it's so closely tied to so many different things in in the history of that country. So that was a really, uh, really, really another cool one to check out for people.
2: <laughs> yes, definitely. That's one of my ironically, one of my most well-known poems and most <laughs> circulated poems. Uh, and I have, you know, uh, several poems about spam because it's a very popular food, both mm. in Guam and, of course, here in Hawaii. And in some ways, this is very delicious, hyper-object in the sense that it has so many of these different meanings and contexts and histories. Um, and so, you know, I write a lot about food colonialism and, and food sovereignty there are several food poems in, in this new book, Habitat Threshold.
0: Great. Okay. So let's get into Habitat Threshold. Um, the, the next poem that we're going to look at, I guess, does have a, a little bit of food or asking for food in it. Um, can we get you to read Halloween in the Anthropocene, please, Craig?
2: Yes. Halloween in the Anthropocene. Darkness spills across the sky like an oil plume. The moon reflects bleached coral. Tonight, let us praise the sacrificed. Praise the souls of black boys enslaved by supply chains who haul bags of cacao under West African heat. Trick or treat, smell my feet, give me something good to eat, sings a girl dressed as a Disney princess. Tonight, let us praise the souls of brown girls, who sew our clothes as fire-on-thread sweatshops into charred flesh. Trick-or-treat, smell my feet, give me something good, whisper kids disguised as ninjas. Tonight, let us praise the souls of Asian teens, who manufacture toys and tech, until gravity sharpens their bodies enough to cut through suicide nets. Trick or treat, smell my feet, give me, chant, kids, masquerading as cowboys and Indians. Tonight, let us praise the souls of native youth whose eyes are open-pit uranium mines, veins, our poison rivers, hearts, our tar sands, tailings, ponds. Tonight, let us praise our mothers of fallout, Mothers of cancer clusters, mothers of slow violence, pray for us because our costumes won't hide the true cost of our greed. Tonight, let us praise our mothers of extinction, mothers of miscarriage, mothers of cheap nature, pray for us because even tomorrow will be haunted.
1: Wow. Again, it's really, really great. So you you describe this one, uh, actually in the book there, as a necropastoral. So can you talk a little bit about that term? What makes this poem a necropastoral? Why are you? Um, I, yeah, I first
2: uh, came across that term uh, reading Joelle McSweeney's work. Uh, she has a book on the necropastoral and thinking about uh, you know a kind of, of nature writing that Uh, focuses on death and toxicity or, you know, the necro politics of certain spaces. And of course, um, you know, if we think about environmental injustice, there are so many of these sacrifice zones that become necropastoral sites of death, places of death. And, you know, for this particular poem, you know, I I literally wrote this on Halloween. (laughs) And so, You know, I was thinking about the kids who were uh, coming to our door, you know, the chocolate candy we were passing out and, you know, really becoming concerned about the sources of both, you know, the chocolate as well as all these costumes. Um, And so, you know, Halloween itself is, you know, a a celebration of, of death in some ways. And so I wanted to kind of invert that. Uh, idea and think about you know all the you know not only the children who are suffering to make our costumes or to to make the chocolate, um, but also you know to kind of praise all the souls of the sacrifice as well. Since Halloween is also kind of a a celebration of of, of souls and and spirits, and so it's, it's kind of a dark poem. Um, but you know there are several poems in this book that that really do try to um, stay with the trouble, as, as Donna Donna Haraway puts it, and as I quote in you know in the epigraph to this book.
0: Mm. And I think what it what it does really well as well with this kind of um, image of Halloween and and. Kids coming to knock on the door is the is the again these kind of strange juxtapositions of the Anthropocene or or these kind of um, bringing to light of things that that we don't normally see or that happen very far away and suddenly it's literally on on your doorstep um, mm. in this poem um, and I particularly loved the way that the kind of the a bit of the refrain gets lopped off each time um so that that kind of gives the ho- gives the phrase a whole new meaning so you know it starts off mm. give me something good to eat then just give me something good and then just give me and it's so it's kind of you know it like both mirrors this kind of um degradation and and loss and kind of uh running out of things of the anthropocene but then also has all these um kind of yeah wonderful repeated uh, or sorry, different meanings to each, to each locution. Um, yeah. So thank you so much. That is again, uh, wonderful. Um,
1: yeah, I also, sorry, if I could just jump into, I also love, uh, I mean, I I think it's one of the things that struck me about it is the, the costumes that you're choosing to highlight. Right. And that, that, I mean, tying that into all this other stuff and kind of the, um, you know, the borderline cultural appropriation that happens often Mm -hmm. on Halloween and goes unnoticed because, you know, perhaps it's just kids being kids or it's because it's Halloween. And so there's a certain kind of, uh lacks a daisical approach to it, but it's still like as that's what I think I I like about this is that it ties all of that darkness together and and that um you know what's to stop us from you know if we're lax on one day and the Mm -hmm. next day and right so um all that kind of stuff and so just you know as ninjas as cowboys and Indians um like those specific costumes that the, the kids are arriving at, right? Because those kids, um, you know, they don't know any better. That It's their parents, you know, a lot of times um, is, is kind of what's doing this, but then teaching their kids and, and that that kind of just perpetuation of, of those things, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of chilling when we think about, you know, all the kids in, in the other parts of the world who are being sacrificed to make this yeah. celebratory holiday uh, possible
1: right it's it, but yeah we get to we get to it's almost like a, a, a form of tourism like those kids Ooh. get to dress like that for one night but Ooh. these other kids are are living this you know the reality of that um every day of their lives right
0: right so th- both of those poems that we've heard have a kind of um you know a response to an event you spoke about the first one being with the with the birth of your first child, and then and then this one being written actually um, for Halloween, um, the next poem we're going to have from you, uh, "Love in a Time of Climate Change," um, says underneath the title "Recycling" Pablo Neruda's twelfth uh, sonnet. No, sorry, what is that fifteenth sonnet? Oh my gosh, seventeenth, 17th, seventeenth. 17th. 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 <laughs> Wow.
1: <laughs>
0: Can we cut that? <laughs> um, no, it's fine. Okay, so for anyone's listening who's like, why can't she read a number? It's Roman numerals. <laughs> and for me it's eight thirty PM, which is like my bedtime. So anyway, that's fine. <laughs> anyway, so Recycling Pablo Neruda's seventeenth sonnet. Um so this one rather than kind of having an event is is responding to another poem. Um, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that bit and kind of what that means before you then go into the poem? Yes.
2: Yeah, so I have a series of poems in this book that I call recyclings. And basically I, I take a, a famous poem and recycle it, so to speak, uh, into our contemporary context. And This particular sonnet 17 is one of Pablo Neruda's most famous love poems. And, you know, I love his work and so many of his love poems use uh, natural metaphors to talk about love. And, you know, so I was thinking what would happen if I recycled that poem to think about uh, using natural love uh, metaphors to describe love in our time. And so that's where the title comes from, Love in a Time of Climate Change. And as you will see, all the metaphors in this poem are more related to, you know, times of climate change and the Anthropocene. Love in a Time of Climate Change. I don't love you as if you were rare earth metals, conflict diamonds, or reserves of crude oil that cause war. I love you as one loves the most vulnerable species, urgently, between the habitat and its loss. I love you as one loves the last seed saved within a vault, gestating the heritage of our roots. And thanks to your body, the taste that ripens from its fruit still lives sweetly on my tongue. I love you without knowing how or when this world will end. I love you organically without pesticides. I love you like this, because we'll only survive in the nitrogen-rich compost of our embrace, so close that your emissions of carbon are mine, so close that your sea rises with my heat.
1: That's, uh, this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a reference here that I'm not sure either of you will get, but it, it, there's a there was a short animated film um, that came out. It was it was like a it wasn't nominated for an Oscar, but it was on like the honorable mentions um, and it's called the missing scarf. Uh, and there's this moment in there where um, they, they kind of talk about um, this idea of the future and, you know, what does it mean to die? And that kind of, thing. so I'm, I'm really struck by a lot of, of that kind of um, right. It's, it's thinking about this moment, but it's also thinking about that future. And in some ways um, there's something like darkly beautiful about mm-hmm. the fact that these two, you know, this, the narrator and, and to whomever they love, um, right. That they, they, can be together, but only, right? I mean, using these kind of nitrogen-rich compost, the emission of carbons are mine so close that your sea rises, right? So there's there's something kind of darkly beautiful about, well, we get to be together, but at what cost, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it makes me, it, it reminded me of that that short animated film because there's, there's just, I show it in my classes and, and my students are always like, oh, that's so depressing. And I'm like, well, it is, but it, there's also something beautiful about the knowledge of, that kind of certain, you know, we know for sure some of the things that are going to happen to our bodies. And um, there's something kind of, be- there's some beauty in that. Yeah, yeah, indeed.
2: That sounds, that sounds interesting. I'll have to check it out and, you know, just thinking about, you know, apocalypse love stories in, in these times and, you know, how to think about love romance and and desire, um, but using, you know, the metaphors or the themes that are are really present in our time. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And it reminded me, I, um, this, I'm, I'm, I'm sounding a terrible, terrible host right now, but, um, a conversation that we also had on on another recent episode about, um, finding hope, Mm -hmm. right. That, that a lot of times, um, you know discussions around climate change discussions around this moment that we're in are often so focused on the kind of negative elements of the future and this one certainly right is still calling our attention to those but i think there's something also hopeful uh within it as well
0: yeah and i th- i think that is um a theme throughout the the collection right that there is there is always this juxtaposition of the of the bleak with with the things that humans do well, which is, you know, love and, and protection. Um, and perhaps on that note, you can uh, move on to the last poem to today for today, um, The Last Safe Habitat.
2: Yes, this poem, The Last Safe Habitat, is dedicated to a native Hawaiian bird known as the Kauai o'o, whose song was last heard here in 1987. I don't want our daughter to know that Hawaii is the bird extinction capital of the world. I don't want her to walk around the island feeling haunted by tree roots buried under concrete. I don't want her to fear the invasive predators who slither, pounce, bite, swallow, disease, and multiply. I don't want her to see paintings and photographs of birds she'll never witness in the wild. I don't want her to imagine their bones in dark museum drawers. I don't want her to hear their voice recordings on the internet. I don't want her to memorize and recite the names of 77 lost species and subspecies. I don't want her to draw a timeline with the years each was first collected and last cited. I don't want her to learn about the Kauai OO who was observed atop a flowering ohia tree, calling for a mate day after day, season after season, because he didn't know he was the last of his kind. Until one day he disappeared forever into a nest of avian silence. I don't want our daughter to calculate how many miles of fencing is needed to protect the endangered birds that remain. I don't want her to realize the most serious causes of extinction can't be fenced out. I want to convince her that extinction is not the end. I want to convince her that extinction is just a migration to the last safe habitat on earth. I want to convince her that our winged relatives have arrived safely to their destination a wondrous island with a climate we can never change and a rainforest fertile with seeds and song
0: wow thank you so much craig um so this poem obviously has a real kind of emotional um tenor to it and i guess kind of Building off what Brandon was was talking about before, um, I wonder if you can kind of tell us a little bit about how your your poetry um, interacts with or influences your your more um, critical academic work. Do you find does the the poetry kind of give you an outlet for things that you can't say in your in your critical work, or do you do you in fact you know actually give the, the same kind of level of affect um, within within the more critical writing?
2: Great question. Um, it definitely does influence both ways. Uh, my critical work is focused on uh, Pacific Islander literature, uh, questions of, of indigenous uh, criticism, as well as the environmental humanities. And so, you know, of course, oftentimes I am more researching other people's uh, writing and you know reading eco criticism and what other people have to say about about environmental literature, and so it's nice to kind of come out from hours and hours of, of research or critical writing to then be, have a space where I can just you know express my own emotions and my thoughts about about these same themes and of course, to, you know, write at least that poem to focus more on Hawaii. Um, And then, you know, in my previous work to focus on Guam, which are are places that are not often uh, written about um, or studied within the larger field of, you know, of American or, or international world literature.
1: Uh, kind of building off of that a little bit, I think you know it's worth highlighting that you've been uh, recently been awarded a Mellon Fellowship in climate change, environmental poetry, and public humanities in Hawaii. Um, so, first of all, congratulations for that. That's great. Thank um, you. But can you can you tell us a little bit more about uh, that project, the work that you'll be doing uh, related to that?
2: Yes, thank you again. So, this was a, a fellowship through the American Council of, of Learned Societies and what they call a scholars and society fellowship. So it's it's basically a public humanities uh, type of fellowship, connecting faculty who teach in PhD granting departments, um, you know, fellowship to work with a host organization to contribute uh, humanities research and scholarship to the public sector, but to also then bring uh, that kind of uh, you know, outside of the academy, work into the academy for uh, our doctoral students to kind of learn about different uh, employment options. And so I was honored to uh, team up with a nonprofit literary organization here in Hawaii called the Pacific Writers Connection. And they're a wonderful org that's been around for about 20 years, uh, focusing on uh, literature and the environment. And they do lots of wonderful programming in the community. And so my project is to uh, work with them to develop a curriculum based on uh, Pacific Islander literature. And this curriculum will then be used in their, in their programs, whether it's uh, poets in the schools or a series of uh, environmental poetry writing workshops that I'll be teaching for them throughout the, the fellowship year. Uh, beyond that, I'll also be bringing on an intern uh, from my my doctoral program in the English department, and and that person will also be working with uh, this nonprofit organization, and so you know it's I was very excited to to learn I received the fellowship, and of course very concerned then when the pandemic uh, started to to spread around the world, and you know all all of the the fellows in my cohort, of course we have you know, we're working with organizations, but now of course we, we can't meet with them in person. A lot of the workshops I plan will, will transition to online uh, remote workshops. And so, you know, that aspect is, is of course disappointing where we can't be in the communities themselves, um, but sure. like, yeah, but like everybody else that we're you know, trying to find creative ways to still uh, stay engaged with community and the public uh, in this new world, we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And if anything, it, 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 you know, I, I guess maybe a silver lining is you can also, you know, possibly connect with people outside of that community and get them engaged as well, and to understand what's happening in those communities because you have that, you know, ability to do so now. And unfortunately, that it's put us in.
2: Yes, indeed. That's a great point. And, you know, this project was going to be focused just on Hawaii for residents of Hawaii, but now we can expand it a bit out and, you know, have other people from across the Pacific join us uh, via online. You know, whereas before, one of the difficult things about being in the Pacific is so, you know, there's so many great distances between islands and it's very expensive to travel. So that was impossible before, but now we can have you know having be both local and more uh, more wider across the Pacific as well.
0: That's wonderful. We will have to look out for the work that comes out of that project then. Um, but we are running out of time, so it is just about time to end on a roll. Brandon, do you want to roll the dice sure. and ask a question? Yep.
1: Yep. So I've got my 12 sided die here and we're just (laughs) going to roll that and whatever number comes up, you're going to get asked. So this time is, uh, all right. So actually I think we've had this one before, but I think this is, it's a good, it's a great question. I think just because, uh, (laughs) of the state of the world right now. But, um, the question is what has you most excited or hopeful right now? Uh, and that can either be like, you know, somewhat, s- some kind of scholarship that, that you're recognizing people doing that's got you really excited or just in the world in general, something that's, that's got you feeling a little bit hopeful.
2: Well, this is an easy one. It's definitely uh, your podcast that I'm very excited oh. about and, and gives me hope. Uh, <laughs> when i first saw it when i first saw it announced i was so excited to apply uh, to be on the show and you know having listened to the previous episodes really made me feel hopeful to learn about what other uh, scholars are doing in the environmental humanities and you know i've been loving you know the root words uh, opening have been like these little poems uh, in my opinion and you know the great questions that you both ask as well as um, just the great personalities you have, I think it's it's a wonderful way to bring together the the community in this new format. So, thank you both for for all your work and for for giving me hope in these troubling times. Oh, thank, is, thank
1: you. That
0: yeah, was... thank you. We we didn't pay him to say that, by the way. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, that was a wonderful answer seriously and yeah thank you so much (laughs) it's nice to be appreciated um and thank you for contributing for coming on the show and and helping us um make another episode sharing your work with us and our listeners um how can people find out a little bit more about you and your work do you have a website or social media or anything that people can look look you up
2: Yes, yeah, so folks can uh, search online, just my full name, and you could find my website. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And for the academics, I have an academia.edu page as well, where I have a lot of my scholarship um, on Pacific literature and the environment. So hopefully folks will reach out. And uh, if you have any questions about the book or any of my other work, I'm, I'm happy to correspond.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's great. And we'll certainly post some links, uh, in the show notes for like your website and, um, things like that. So yeah, so definitely check that stuff out. Thank you again for being here. We really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. If you have an idea for an episode, either work of your own that you want to have featured or someone that you would like for us to reach out to and try and have on the show, please uh, let us know that information. We'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on our email, which is asley.ecocast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at asley underscore ecocast. Uh, Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.